All right, well, hey, if you are a guest, here's what we're doing. Today is the final part of a series called Reflections. The good news is you're not at all behind because every one of these was a singular standalone message. Um, They were things that I reflected upon during my sabbatical that I took this summer. I was out for a few weeks. And so we simply planned to share with you some of the things that God had been speaking to me and had me meditating on that were not just for me. And so who's ready for the last one? Everybody? Good. Because I've got the microphone and we're going to do it either way. All right, so let me tell you, here's uh, what happened. I wrapped up my sabbatical experience by taking my second son to a father-son, father-daughter, in this case father-son, adventure camp that's built on building relationship and building faith. And it's an amazing camp. If anybody wants to strengthen your relationship with your child, come and talk to me later. Because by the end of the week, you and your, your child are like this. And they are much closer as well with Jesus. So that's not the point. The point is that one night, as we were having our worship service all together, we were singing a song. Now, I'm never good at remembering the song, the titles of worship songs, because to me, the titles of worship songs are all the same. They're all like, I love you, Jesus, or something like just whatever. So they're always the same, and I can never remember the title. So I don't know exactly which song. And by the time I could get home and talk to our worship team, I couldn't figure it. But here's the deal. We were singing a song that had words very similar to this. Jesus has set me free. Sin has no power on me. Sin has no hold on me. I have no problem with sin. Some version of that, like that kind of thing. And as I am watching, I'm looking around the room, there are 300 fathers and sons or daughters in this room. Hands are raised. The kids have actually rushed the stage. They're all down front. And I'm looking around the room and remembering what I've heard so many times as a pastor. And so many of us feel like liars when we sing those songs. People have come and said, Pastor, I really struggle when we're we're singing that song. I just, you know, I know we sing in faith, right? Y'all do realize we sing in faith because none of us are perfect. We sing a lot of songs in faith. We're saying, Jesus, help me. But there are times where you really just want to tell the person beside you, you need to scoot over because I'm afraid lightning can, like this is so untrue of me. And and we just feel ashamed. We feel guilty. Matter of fact, I specifically had the worship team sing that second song today, the one that says, sin has no hold on me. Just because I wanted you to be able to relate. You don't have to raise a hand. You don't even have to blink an eye. But how did you feel when you were singing those words? Did you want to go, yes! Or did you kind of go, ouch. I just wish that were truer than it is. So as I'm standing there in my sabbatical watching all these people worship, the problem that I had was I've got to go back and preach in just a few weeks. I've got to go back to the people that tell me they feel like liars when they sing those songs. But we've got to keep singing those songs because it is what we believe. And as I'm standing here thinking, wait a minute, faith and and forgiveness and victory over sin is at the core of our faith. And it's the very thing that I preach. I'm asking myself, I'm asking God, I'm, I'm just standing here thinking, is getting a victory over sin really that complicated? And I felt the Holy Spirit say, no. Is there a practical realistic, easy-to-convey message on how to get free of sin. I felt the Holy Spirit say, yes. So then I said, what is it? And that's what I'm going to share with you today, the rest of our message. If you've got your Bibles, I would love for you to follow along for this message. You can go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 1. And while you're turning to James chapter 1, which I think might be one of the most foundational messages to help us get free of our struggle with sin... I want to lay out a theological truth that we all just need to know. Biblical truth, reality of our world, and it's just like this. Because, look, we all have a dilemma. And the dilemma is we know we're all sinners. 
But we also know Jesus said, go and sin no more, right? You know that dilemma? We know we're all sinners. Nobody will be perfect until they get to heaven. But Jesus said, go and sin no more, even while you're on the earth. So I want to give it to you like this. Here's the theological truth for that dilemma. Our sin nature is our condition. But our sin action is our choice. Do y'all see that? Leave that on the screen for a few minutes. Our sin nature is our condition. What that means is we are born as humans into the fallen human race. There will always be a thought or a, or a desire or something inside of us that makes us want to do things that are ungodly. Let me say it this way. There will always be thoughts and desires inside of us that reveal that we are not perfectly like God. But what we do with those thoughts and desires, well, that's something we actually have a choice about. And that is the difference. When we say we're all sinners, we're referring to our human condition. Our sin nature is our condition. There is something inside of us that wants to do something that is not perfectly godly. But we don't have to choose that lifestyle. We don't have to act upon all of those thoughts and those desires. Does that make sense to everybody? And so now that we understand this dilemma that we really wrestle with, I want to show you this passage from James, and I'm just going to read straight through it, then I'm going to go back and explain it because there's a lot there. We're going to go from verse 13 to verse 17. So James opens by saying, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Yeah, don't say that because God cannot tempt with evil. Cannot, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he or she is lured or enticed by his or her own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now I want to go back and help you see what all James said, because that was deep and that was long. And if, if you were in Bible college and needed to write like a 20-page paper, you could use that passage right there. He's saying so much. And I'm going to try to keep it as simple, but let you see all of it as I can today. And I first want to ask a question I think we need to ask before we go any further, and that is, why do we care what James thinks? Uh, Y'all are like, did he really just say that? It's in the Bible, Jimmy. That's why we care. Look, I could do that. I literally could just, I mean, hey, we're in church and I'm preaching. I could just stand up and go, we care because he made the Bible. You didn't. He did. We care what he thinks. And that would be a fair answer, but I can give you a better one today that'll make you care more about what James says. You see, I don't know if you know this or not. James was the brother of Jesus. If there's anyone who got the opportunity to pull Jesus aside and say, hey, big bro, can you clarify something for me? I want you to think about this. James was right beside Jesus his entire life until Jesus was nailed to a cross. He was always there. And we don't have a lot of Jesus' early days recorded in Scripture. Most of what we have started at about the age of 30. So here's what James got that you and I don't have. James got to sit at the dinner table when Jesus was like 16. And one of his brothers or sisters threw some food just to be funny. And his mama said, don't do that. And his daddy said, don't disrespect your mama. And then Jesus said something about honoring the father. And the, you know what I'm saying? I mean, can you just imagine every night dinner with Jesus and you've got sinners for brothers and sisters who keep giving an opportunity. Oh my gosh, I would pay money for that opportunity. Here's my point. James got to sit and watch every one of those conversations. 
Every time Jesus said something brilliant to a younger sibling, every time somebody said something brilliant, even his mother and father went, ooh, you know, that kind of thing. James was there. Let's go a step further. When Jesus had been crucified, raised again, spent 40 days with the disciples teaching about the kingdom of God, and then he ascended to heaven saying he'll be back someday. He will be, by the way. But in the meantime, what happened at that moment when he said, don't leave Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. And a whole other story begins. That church that was born right there in that spot, James went on to pastor it. Ground zero of the church upon the earth and move the Holy Spirit. James became the pastor. Years later, decades later, when the, disciples, the apostles, the disciples were kind of arguing, do we do this, do we do it that way? Did y'all know these people are getting saved? Who knew? What, you know, those kinds of questions are like, what do we do? They all went back to Jerusalem and said, hey, James, can you help bring some clarity? The reason that it matters so much what James has to say about sin is because it was very clear to the early church, and it was very clear to the disciples who walked with Jesus for three years, and it should be clear to us today that James is a trustworthy authority on the heart of God and the teachings of Jesus. He gets to say, I grew up with a son. I know a thing or two. Y'all with me? Okay, with that being said, I hope now what we're about to read means just a little bit more than any other thing you may come across. So he says, again, in verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be Tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I grew up going to church. I grew up going to Bible school. I grew up going to Sunday school. And I remember the first time I heard that or read it, I don't remember which it was, but I do remember my first thought was, duh. Anybody else, you ever read that and you thought, who has to actually put it in the Bible that God is not bad? That God is good and whatever God does is good. Why would he even have to put that in the Bible? Duh. Except it wasn't. So, duh, then. The truth is, it's not now. You see, when James was writing this nearly 2,000 years ago, there was a strong teaching by some of the Jewish teachers of the day that the desires in me are neutral. There's nothing inherently bad about me because I'm created by God. God is good. Anything that I desire, therefore, is good. There's not a problem. And if I'm going through any kind of a temptation, well, it's just a test from God. Therefore, it's God's fault because God is testing me and God made me and there's absolutely nothing wrong inside of me. So James actually had to address that heresy that was so strong 2,000 years ago, by the way, is still rampant in our world today. In our world today, at the very center of all of the cultural debates that you and I hear go back and forth on, and, and I've seen enough from Christians on social media to know that as I say this, not everybody's going to agree with me, but, but please just at least allow me to, to teach the concept here. And that is the very center of our debates on sexuality and gender are the exact same debates today that the brother of Jesus was having then. That we think that just because we're created by God, anything that I desire is therefore good. James is actually going to go on to hit this head on. So let's, let's keep going because we're facing it today, right, everybody? We're facing those same things today. So James ends with explaining this. Verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And we're going to pause before we read the rest of that. Take that off the screen before they get to read it. Before we read the rest of that, I want you to understand what he just said is so heavy. Do not be deceived. I'm going to make a statement. And if you disagree with it, you're deceived. Woo, come on, y'all, that's heavy, right? 
And, and in case you're confused, what the word deceived means is God believes this to be true. If you don't believe it to be true, you're deceived. Because God is God, he gets to decide what is true. That's what James is saying. Again, he grew up with the Son of God. He knows a thing or two, right? And so he makes this incredibly bold statement. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. You have to agree with what I'm about to say. What in the world is James about to tell us? He's going to give us two things in one sentence that are critical. They were critical then, they're critical today. So here we go. Put that back on the screen for us. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. He's referring to all of the lights of, of creation, the sun, the moon, the stars. He's saying the Father of our creation, the God of our universe, El Shaddai as we know him. I mean, he's, he's making this very clear who he's talking about. With whom? Our God, with whom there is no variation or change. There's no variation or change. And this is so important to talk about. Because today, one of the biggest things that we do struggle with in our world, especially those of you that are, are younger, like college age-ish and younger, you're dealing with this thing in the world called progressive Christianity that, that, well, if God were here today, he would understand our culture and he would say things differently, he would write things differently because our culture is different. Actually, that is not at all true. And not only because I disagree with it, but because it's actually historically not true. And I'm going to prove it to you right now. Follow me. James was written about 2,000 years ago. The New Testament, most of it was written about 2,000 years ago. And people say, but the Bible is so archaic and it's so old and God would have changed and, and, and things would be different. And our culture is whatever. I'll come back to the culture, but follow this. When James was writing this nearly 2,000 years ago, he was defending statements God had made that were nearly 2,000 years old. You see, everything that Moses wrote was at least 1,500 years old. And James is saying, look, God does not change. When God told Moses, you shall not lie, you shall not steal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, James is saying, God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed in 2,000 years, and people's desires for sin have not changed God's mind about it in nearly 2,000 years. God hasn't changed. Well, guess what's still true 2,000 years again? If what Moses said was just as true when James was writing, then what James wrote is just as true as somebody gets on the internet today. 1,500, 2,000 years, God hasn't changed because 1,500 years is a blink of an eye to him. He doesn't change because humanity's desires for sin have changed. Actually, they haven't, which is my next point. You say, but look at our world today, Jimmy. Look at culture and look how things have changed. Look what we've learned. Actually, the gender and sexuality issues that we face today are less. I know some of you think I'm crazy, but they're actually less than they were in the Roman culture that had dominated the biblical world. When James is writing this and he's looking at what is permissible and prevalent and promoted in the Roman culture, it honestly makes our world look like everybody goes to church. So God hasn't changed. Then he goes on to help us discern this idea. If it's inside of us and it's from God, it must be good. Every good gift Every perfect gift is from the Father. Is this good? Well, if so, it has to be from God. If it is good, it has to be from God. Now, follow me, because this is important. And if it's from God, it must be godly. You see, the word godly is a very, very simple word. It means that it reflects the nature and character of God. You with me? This is so simple. Ungodly 
means it does not reflect the nature and character of God. In other words, it should be an incredibly simple litmus test. When something comes into our lives, instead of just saying, well, it came into my life, it must be good, it came from God, James says, no, you actually have to test it. If it is from God, then it is good because it is godly, because it's from God. So you don't get to just say everything that's in your heart and everything in your life is good. No, no, you have to test it. It's got to be from God, which means it has to be godly. Ungodly is not reflecting the nature or character of God. So when we think something or we have an attitude or an action that is ungodly, meaning not like God, we have a three-letter word for that, and that's what we're talking about today. Everybody knows what I'm talking about? Sin. That's it. It's incredibly simple. The word sin is when we have a thought, an action, or an attitude that we allow to continue in our lives. Sin. Now, here's the point. Are y'all still with me? Because we're doing a deep dive. Deep dive, okay? There's almost no one in our world today that would debate if sin exists. You will find a few on the very far fringe that says there's no such thing as sin. But let me show you how quickly you can deal with their arguments. Find that person who says there's no such thing as sin. Whatever works for you is cool. Whatever works for me is cool. Then go up to them and say, so I can kill your dog? And they'll suddenly go, well, no, that would be wrong. Wait a minute, who gets to define wrong? So there is wrong in the world. There is sin in the world. So the debate no longer is really about is there sin. The debate is about defining sin. And sin is ungodly. So the real debate is very simple today. Let's redefine God. If we can redefine God, then we can redefine sin. I get to do anything I want. I get to call whatever I feel good because I just redefined God. How many times do you hear someone or have you ever heard someone say, well, the God I believe in, well, I think God would. If there is a God, he or she or it, or if we can redefine God, we redefine ungodly, and you get to do whatever you want to do. See, what happens without an absolute God, sin becomes relative to every single person's own desire. Before I go any further, I'm going to make a very strong statement because I just I can't go any further until you get this. I can't help you if you are trying to deal with a false idea of sin based on your self-created version of God. I can't help you if you are trying to deal with a false idea of sin based on your self-created version of God. It's not the sermon I wrote. It's not the one I'm giving. I can't give that sermon. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to help every human stop doing something that they think is good as long as they believe it is good. The message I wrote today, the dilemma I had on my sabbatical watching people worship God, this message is written for people who are sincere followers of God or at least sincere seekers who believe there is a God who defines godly. And if you do believe there's a God who defines godly, or you're at least on the journey of wanting to believe that to be true, then I'm here to help you today with getting the ungodly out of your life. Okay, does everybody understand what I am doing and what I can't do? Okay, good. With that being said, I want to show you the best promise that God makes to you and me when it comes to this regard. It's not in James. Hold your finger there. We're coming, just stay there. I'll put this on the screen. We're coming right back to James. But in 1 Corinthians, God makes an incredible promise. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. There is nothing you could face that you're the first one. This is not a new problem. It's not a new problem for you. Matter of fact, I've preached an entire series on the temptation of Christ. Jesus faced everything that you and I will ever face, and he beat it all. He gave us the example. He showed us how to do it. James is going to explain it to us right here in a minute. 
So there's nothing you face that's new. He goes on to say, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. God will provide the way of escape. That's the promise. How do we get the way of escape? Let's go back to James, everybody, because here is the middle. Here's the two most important sentences, I think, for helping us deal with this. He said, but each person, in verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his or her own desire. Do you see the underlines? Lord, enticed, desire. Let me share with you what the importance is here. The word Lord means carried away. Enticed means lured with bait. That means you got carried away because you were attracted to the bait. Okay? Desire is internal longing inside of you. It's interesting that most of the disciples were fishermen, so James is giving us a really great fisher analogy. Like, we even call it lure when we, like, put it on a hook and put it in the water to catch a fish. He's explaining the process. When there is a shiny piece of bait on a hook and there is hunger inside a fish, the hunger connects with the shiny little worm and he is now carried away into a boat to be your dinner. Very, very simple. you got to have something inside the fish called hunger. You've got to have an external attraction, worm on a hook, and then he's going to be carried away. Just for free, a full fish never bites a worm on a hook. Anyway, that's enough on your presence of God you need in your life. I want to show you two things, though, that are really, really important and cool because they're going to change how you view this whole thing. Number one, is everybody listening? Because this is new. If you tuned out, if you're playing Candy Crush, put it down and listen to the sentence. James never mentions the devil. Yeah, somebody almost clapped. You're right. See, James is worthy of a clap there. James never mentions the devil. If you've ever tried to say, the devil made me do it, you lied. It's not the devil's fault. Matter of fact, James is making this incredibly clear. Let's start everybody by saying it is not God's fault. That was his opening sentence. It is not God's fault. It is yours. It's inside of you. You are carried away by a shiny little worm on a hook because you're a hungry fish. Internal longing is the problem. You don't get to say the devil made me do it. It's your internal longing. And then the second thing that James says says here is so beautiful is that the word desire is singular. Now all of you are thinking, is that man giving me a grammar lesson in Greek? Seriously? No, because that's not what matters. Here's what matters. See, James wrote that this was a singular instance, not some nebulous plurality like a cloud. Like, well, if I leave my house and I walk out into the world, temptation is just a cloud that envelops me. There's no way I can avoid it. It is all around me. I'm just stuck in this world. I am doomed to sin. And James says, no, every desire is a specific, singular longing within you, within you. Matter of fact, one of the scholars, as I was doing research, he he explained this whole singular thing with the devil so beautifully. He says, James does not blame the tempter without, he blames the traitor within. What you are dealing with at every single moment that you are struggling with a temptation, it's not the devil that's the problem. It's not the cloud of culture that lives around you. It is one specific thing inside of your heart. 
at every single moment. One particular longing that does not long for what God longs for. That's it. That's as simple as it gets. Here, let me give it to you this way. Think of something that you are not struggling with when it comes to sin. We've all got things we do struggle with because we have an internal longing. We all have other things that we don't have an internal longing for. For instance, maybe you have no desire to kill people at all. That would indicate, first of all, you've never driven in traffic here in this city. But second of all, maybe, just maybe, you've never had a desire to kill someone. But you have had the desire to be mean to someone. And to say things you shouldn't say or to be judgmental. Maybe you've never in your life said a mean thing to a person. But every now and then, a few extra dollars from someone else's wallet keeps slipping into your pocket. How does that happen? You see, we all have things that we struggle with, and we all have things we don't struggle with. And that's what helps you identify the things you do struggle with. Look, I've given an illustration that I just, I don't know, this is just the best illustration I can make, and it's one that you'll never forget. And I used it five or six years ago, so I'm going to use it again just to make sure everybody gets it. Okay, here you go. I hate pickles. I hate pickles with a passion. I hate vinegar, therefore I hate pickles. I think pickles are horrible. I think the flavor of them is absolutely horrible. I don't want them anywhere near me. And so look, when I go to a restaurant and it's predictable that this type of entree comes with a pickle, like say a hamburger and french fries, I will ask the waitress with a smile on my face and I'll be as kind as I can because I don't want her to spit in my food, but I'll be as kind as I can and say, hey, can you tell me, does this come with a pickle? And she'll say, well, of course it does. And I'm secretly thinking, well, what demons work in the kitchen? I'm just kidding. And so I say, could you do me a favor and don't bring me my pickle? Matter of fact, can you make sure that pickle never goes anywhere near my plate? Can you actually please ask them, don't mistakenly put the pickle on my plate and then take it off. And therefore the pickle juice runs onto my hamburger bun. And I get a surprise bite that's like demonic and makes me want to throw up in front of everybody in the restaurant. Like we don't need to go there. Can you make sure I don't get a pickle? I don't like pickles. There's no internal longing for me to have a pickle, which therefore means no matter what you put around me, the external attraction never connects. Follow this. I have never, ever wanted to steal your pickle. <laughs> you want to go one step further? You could bring me the best pictures of the juiciest pickles, the ones that you wish could be on every calendar pinup and you need to know, I don't have pickle porn. <laughs> See how deep I go without you knowing it. But chocolate, on the other hand. If it's milk chocolate, it's half candy. You can keep it. But if it's dark chocolate, it's chocolate. And I have an internal longing that sometimes is a little uncontrollable. And if you have chocolate, you should keep a good grip on it. And I just automatically assume if your chocolate is not nicely tucked away in your pocket and it is within my reach that you are a naturally generous person who is trying to bless me. <laughs> the problem is not the tempter without. The problem is the traitor within. And you need to know you have individual, specific, singular traitors living inside of you. You want to get free of sin? Stop blaming the devil. Look in the mirror and go, it's you. And know yourself. Know yourself. Know yourself. You've got to know what will take you down. You've got to know. Because the bait is out there. 
The external attraction is out there. You've got to know what it is. And so James goes on, and he explains what comes next. If we let this internal longing meet an external attraction, he says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. That's what we already said. So he says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is letting our internal longing meet our external attraction. It always ends in some kind of death. If sin gets to grow unhindered, its result is death. Now, that could be a different kind of death, depending on what it is. It could start out with being a relational death. Maybe you have an ungodly jealousy in your heart. Next thing you know, that kills a relationship. Maybe you have adultery that kills a marriage. Maybe you have gossip that kills a friendship. You guys get the idea here, right? Maybe you have something that causes the death of a dream or an opportunity. Cheat on your LSAT exam, not going to law school. Maybe you were doing well, climbing the ladder in the financial sector, but you never dealt with the greed in your heart, and so you start skimming a little off the books thinking nobody will notice, and that's the death of your career in finance. You'll get another job, but it won't be in a bank. Do you understand how sin, when it is not confronted, when it grows and grows, it turns out death in the end all of the time? And I want to touch on one last one. Two, sorry, two last ones. The first one is this. It can also result in the death of your freedom. See, this is when the Bible says sin traps you in sin. You want to say the devil made me do it, but actually, no. I'm going to tell you in a minute how the devil's still not the one to blame. We can still get out, but if we leave sin unchecked, the Bible says sin traps us in sin. We've come up with words that help us understand that, like addictions and habits and other issues, but the truth is it's sin trapping us in sin because we didn't do what I'm about to show you that God gives us. But the one that I want to make sure we touch on, the most important one before we go any further today, everybody, is sin brings forth real death, dead death, life-altering, eternal death. Here's my point. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But the good news is for the free, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have been listening to a Christian talk to you or something and they said, hey, I got saved. And you go, what does saved mean? Here's the truth. Someone will die for your sins. Someone. Someone will die for your sins. The question is, will it be you or will it be Jesus on the cross for you? But somebody will die to pay for your sins. The wages of sin is death. That's a conversation you can have with God when you get to heaven if you want to. I could explain it on a whole other sermon another day, but right now, I just need you to go with this. Somebody will die to pay for your sins. You have a choice of letting it be you, and then you have eternal punishment away from eternal life. This is the most important decision you'll ever make. We're going to stop right now. Normally, at this point in the message, I say, and I will come back to you at the end today, and I'm not going to do that. We're going to do this so differently because this is the most important decision you can ever make. Most people would say the most important decision you ever make is marriage. No, no, no. Marriage is who you spend a few decades with. I'm talking about who you spend eternity with. This is the most important decision you'll ever make. And that is to say, Jesus, I don't want to die for my sins. Thank you that you did. You see, this is that word saved. It means that we are now forgiven because, follow this, you sinned. There is a thought, an attitude, or an action at one point in your life, even if it was only once in third grade. And now your sins have to be dealt with. But God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life 
to die on the cross in your place. Because he lived a perfect life, when his body was broken and his blood was shed, he can pay for your sins and mine because he doesn't have any of his own. And because he didn't stay dead and was resurrected by the power of the Father, he can offer us eternal life. That our death on the earth will not be our final death. It's called the free gift of salvation. But what we're going to do differently today, if this is your first time here, you won't even know it's different. But for everybody else, this is really weird. Because normally I, I lead people in a silent prayer at the end of my message. Today it's not going to be at the end and it's not going to be silent. And here's the reason for that. Because with this being the most important decision you can ever make, I don't want someone here who's a little shy to be, un, to be unwilling to pray this prayer because there are so many other people in the room. So for those of you that already know Jesus to be your king, I'm going to ask you, can you say this out loud for the sake of people who need to say it for the first time? Can you do that with me? So again... Not the end of the message. I'm not done preaching. Don't gather your stuff, but if everybody would pray with me right now and say this out loud and boldly. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to save me. I thank you that you died for me. And now I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. In my simple prayer here today, will you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom? Amen. Come on, let's celebrate everybody. The good news is now none of you will have to die the ultimate death at the end of James' sentence. So what I'm going to do now, we have done as, as deep a dive as we can. We've gone as, as understanding as we can get into the biblical scripture of how we can get the power of sin out of our lives. But most of you won't remember every word of James on a Wednesday afternoon or a Friday night. So I'm going to leave you with a picture, a mental picture of exactly what James just told you is possible and how to do it in your life. This is only an analogy. Is everybody with me? You can do an analogy for me. Okay? Because we're only dealing with two things. Now that we've dealt with real death at the end of your life and it has no power, now let's back up to two things. Two things. Stop at the point that your longing and your attraction see each other. Deal with the temptation. But if we fail, then deal with sin before it's fully grown. That's it. That was the whole message today. I know we went into a lot of words, but it's really that simple. We can deal with it at the point it tempts us. But if we miss that point, then we have to deal with it before it's fully grown. I'm going to give you a picture. I want everybody to imagine going to your high school dance. If you never went to a high school dance, I want you to imagine whatever movie comes to mind with a high school dance. For me, my generation, it's back to the future. If you're a little older than me or you're just nostalgic at Christmas, you can imagine it's a wonderful life with Jimmy Stewart before the floor opens up. If you're younger than me, good luck. I don't know. My son told me this morning, stranger things. Anyway, I want you to imagine the movie, the scene, the high school gym is all decked out and everybody is all dressed up. And you go to this dance knowing that he or she going to be at this dance they're in the crowd somewhere you've been looking but it's a big crowd and as you keep looking wondering where is this one that you know you are attracted to that the longing is within and you're looking 
And then suddenly, the song comes on. Yep, that song. And just as that song begins to play, it's like the crowd just magically opens up and the waters part for you. And the lights shine on this person across the room and you see him or her and your eyes lock and your knees go weak and your heart starts beating faster. This is that first moment James talked about. When there is an internal longing and across the gym floor is an external attraction. Choice A, do what happens in the movies. It works in the movies. Go running across the floor, embrace and dance the song to the end. Or choice B. Choice B, you can turn around, look for the closest door, fire exit for the gymnasium, the closest to you, the furthest from him or her, and run with all of your might. You see, that's the first thing that James said, is when there's something in here that wants something over there, run! Run with all your might. But here's, here's the good news. That is not the only way out because sometimes, well, we don't run like we should. If you know you're not going to run like you should, there's still another way out. If you know you're likely to dance at this dance, don't go to the dance. Don't go to the dance. Our executive pastor, Eric, teaches his sons and he teaches all of our young men and I've stolen it and I teach everybody and take all credit for it. He says, if you can't control the temptation, control the opportunity. If you know you're going to dance, then you just don't go to the dance. Look, here's the point. I can control the temptation. I can go through a pickle factory and I'm not going to touch a thing. But I can't go to a chocolate factory. If you can't control the temptation, control the opportunity. But there's one more. Still, God will give you a way out. He didn't leave you here on this world alone, so don't go it alone. Tell one of your friends, man, do everything you can to keep me away from that dance this Friday night. And make sure that friend knows, if you fail and you let me show up at the dance somehow, then you better be watching for that person and keep me far from them. Everybody with me? Okay, just for the fun of it, let's do a quick timeout in case somebody wants to take what I'm preaching, snip it all up and put it on the internet out of context. I have seen Footloose and I do not believe that dancing is a sin. We're having an analogy. In this analogy, dancing is the sin. I'm not saying it's a sin. Okay, everybody okay with that? At least most of what you do at a high school, some of what you do at a high school dance is okay. I'm just going to leave it at that and we're going to move on. <laughs> so we've dealt with the first thing. When you see him or her across the floor, you can run. You could have never gone to the dance in the first place. You could have a friend help you. But we all know at some point we've all missed stopping the temptation. We've all got a story of allowing something to be conceived. So now we've got to deal with getting the sin out of our lives before it becomes fully grown. See how easy this is? And again, God comes to the rescue. Here's what the Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God, I saw him or her. I knew it was going to happen. And I ran anyway. I, I just, God, I was weak. God, I had a moment. God, I need you to forgive me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all that unrighteousness, which means when he looks at you, he sees you washed white as snow. He sees you the way he sees the son Jesus who died for you and took those sins away from you. He cleanses us. 
One of the first problems is that after we messed up and we let temptation have its run, and now something is conceived and sin is growing in our lives, this is where we really do get trapped. It's because as Christians, we're so filled with shame and trying to look so perfect every time we come into church that we're not willing to say, hey, man, I've got to tell you something. I need some help. Hey, God, instead of standing here while we're singing and feeling like a liar, how about you just tell God, hey, God, I've sinned. I need these words to be true. Hey, God, I confess to you that I, hey, God, I confess that I, hey, God, will you forgive me for? God, will you cleanse me of? In the second one, James does this in the end of his book. Same book that we're reading. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. You see, when you confess to God, you are washed white of your sin legally in heaven. But then he tells us to come and confess it to each other so that we have someone to walk through this life with that knows what's going on in here, that knows what we struggle with, so we're not the only person that knows what that internal longing is that's going to take us down one at a time. And we have someone who then can help us receive healing from the damage that sin has done in our lives. The problem is too many of us, we've let sin start and we're keeping it all secret. We haven't asked God to wash us clean, so sin has power. Sin in secret has power. But if we just tell God, I confess, I need your help. If I could get the worship team to come on out, we're going to end differently today. And then if we go to other people in James 5, 16, but if we confess our sins one to another, be healed. The way we're going to end today is I want to make sure that today is different. That today is not just, hey, I heard a talk about sin or, hey, I heard something and, and, and I'll, you know, go home and look at my notes later. But I wanted to make sure we actually had time to leave this place changed. How many of you would like to leave this place changed? Like different from the way you came in. With whatever temptation is fighting you, with whatever temptation you had lost the battle with, with whatever sin is going on in here you've never talked to God about, with whatever sin you've never told anyone about. What we're going to do is go back and sing that song. We're not going to sing the whole song. Matter of fact, we're singing a small part of it over and over and over again. So if you would, stand to your feet. And I want to encourage you. You take this moment. Let's talk to God about the battles that we're facing with sin in our lives. And let's let the worship team lead us to a place of responding to God right now.
mercy that even when we've messed up and we've allowed this process to go too far, that your grace is right there. We can come to you and say, God, forgive me. God, you are so good. You are so loving. We thank you for what Jesus did on the cross and we thank you for what he did on the cross, still applying to our lives every single moment of every single day that you will wash us clean and set us free from the power of sin. You are good. And all God's people said, amen.